Uh, the reading tonight is taken from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, starting at verse 17. And it can be found on page 1152 of the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you came together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come again together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Um, We're going to remind ourselves what Holy Communion is all about. Because we all know that it's very easy to get into the habit of doing things uh, automatically. But by doing so, we can sometimes forget what they mean. And what's more, when that happens and you have an empty head, then it's not likely to stay empty for very long. And some unhelpful and erroneous ideas can creep in and be quite unhelpful. Now, uh, communion is known by various names. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, breaking of bread, the Mass. And we'll elaborate on them as we go through. But there are just two aspects I'd like to concentrate on this evening. One is what does the service mean and the second is why do we do the service the way that we do? Now, 
from that passage in 1 Corinthians, amongst other things, it does point us that when we're celebrating communion, or any of the other terms we might use, um, that we're looking in different directions. And first of all, it is looking back. If you've ever worshipped with the Christian brethren, you will know that they call the service the breaking of bread, and they have biblical warrant for it. So when we look at the earliest recorded account of the Last Supper, which is of course not in the Gospels, because they were probably written in the form that we have them, they may have existed partially in other snippets of information, but in the form that we have them, they were probably written just a few years after Paul started writing his letters. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks, broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. So we look back, we are to remember. We are to remember, though, in not the life of Jesus, which is what you would look what you would do when you study anybody who is a, a historical character. But here, Jesus particularly wants us to remember his death. You see, it is the broken bread and it is the poured wine that we focus our attention on, which of course recalls the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord himself. So when we are called to remember, it's not the Jesus of Nazareth so much as the Jesus of Calvary. Now the New Testament is short on the graphic physical details about the horrific and barbaric nature of crucifixion. But the powerful events that surround Jesus' death are almost deafening in their significance because, for example, between 12 noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that Good Friday, the sky went black as Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the point when he was in hell. He was separated from God the Father who he had never been separated before in all eternity. And we pause for a moment just to recall the agony that Jesus felt as he experienced that darkness. That is what grieved him. I mean, it's hard to imagine what having nails driven through your feet and hands and hanging on a cross where you're fighting for every breath of your life. There is a physical excruciation, which is where we get the word excruciation from. But to be separated from God the Father... Although that is probably harder for us to imagine, but that is the greatest suffering that Jesus went through, a sense of abandonment. And as we remember that, we remember that that abandonment is what we would have had to have experienced eternally had he not experienced it for us. And then we have another great visual image, the curtain in the temple which covered the access to the symbolic presence of God on earth. And it was split in two, from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. God is removing the barrier 
between us and him. We could not do it, only he could. And he could only do it that way. And then Jesus cried, it's finished. The work has been done. Access to God has been achieved by him. God had found a just way to give sinful human beings access to himself. So first of all, when we gather at communion services, we are to look back and remember. Now, of course, for any Christian who looks back to the events of Calvary, perhaps the next direction is obvious. We're to look up in gratitude. We respond in gratitude to God the Father for his initiation of this wonderful saving work and for his son volunteering for it. You know, he wasn't an unwilling conscript to the task. He was a willing volunteer. He had conceived this way of salvation from before they ever created the universe. Jesus, on the night before his death, gave thanks, and so should we. And uh, the word you may well hear, if you've got friends who belong to churches which are higher churches, if you like, not in the sense that they go in for more ritual than we do. You can hardly go in for less, really. But um, they, uh, they call it the Eucharist. It's from the Greek word Eucharistos, which means thankful, and is what some of our high church brethren like to term the service. And they are right to do so, so long as they remember that in the Eucharist we are making two offerings. Our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and the offering of our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice to God's praise and glory. If that's what we're thanking him for, that's fine. It's when ideas creep in about the minister or the presbyter being a priest and offering the sacrifice of Christ again that we've departed from biblical understanding. The official Roman Catholic line is that the bread and the wine on the altar, as they call it, actually become the body and blood of Christ. The bread and the wine change substance. They transubstantiate when the priest says the words of institution and are then offered to the Father again as Christ's sacrifice. For us in the Church of England, the leader of the congregation presides at the service. By prayer, ordinary bread and wine are set apart, and they stay bread and wine, but they take on a new significance. They transignify, if you like. They symbolise to us the body and the blood of Christ. Now it seems to me, if you go back to the Bible to work out really who's got it right, Protestants or Catholics, that when Jesus at the Last Supper was there and the pitta bread was over there, when he said, this is my body, he clearly did not mean that literally because this is his body and the bread's over there. 
So he can't have done. And in fact, to get your head around that, you have to do all sorts of mental gymnastics. We don't accept the uh, distinction between... Um, well, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, taught you could have an accident and a substance. In other words, something could look different, could look different on the outside to what it is on the inside. So it could change on the inside, even though the outside stayed the same. We don't think like that at all. We take the whole thing as a whole. So we go on. And they, they, uh, they are um, placed, um, the, the, the bread and the wine are placed on the table. In the prayer book, there are only tables in Anglican churches. There are no altars, despite what some might try and say. They are none. It's banned, actually. They are tables, and tables are made of wood and are for eating. Altars are made of stone, and they are for sacrifices. Now, I'm not a priest in any Old Testament sense of that word. I'm a priest only in the sense that all Christians are a priest. All Christians have direct access to God and offer him praise. As a presiding minister, I and other ministers serve you. We minister to you the bread and the wine. We don't offer it to God at all. We offer it to you. So God provides the meal and we serve the food to you for your benefit and you give thanks for that benefit. Now, thinking of it as a meal brings us to the idea of the Lord's Supper, the Messianic banquet, that great party that's going to take place at the end of time when the Lord Jesus will return. As Paul writes, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, or as the service says, as we look for his coming in glory. You see, we're only visiting this planet. Our time here is only temporary. The Lord's Supper reminds us constantly of the future, of eternity, and the great celebration that that is going to be. As Christians, we have hope. As the poet Browning wrote, the best is yet to be. So we look forward. And after looking forward to that hope, we then look around we are able here to gather around the table. I like that because the service is uh, meant to be a sharing, a communion. Even back in the 16th century, the Anglican liturgy intended the Lord's table should be in the body of the church and that we should gather around it. Well, we almost quite do. It is, must, it is very odd doing a... I've once done it, where you have, the table is in the middle and everybody is around you. You can't see them all the time. I can't even quite see when people sit in the extremes. Um, I can only see one side at one time in the, the end kind of rows. But this is, this is pretty good as it gets in a, in a square. This is kind of... We're in the round. We're not sort of... Uh, we're gathering around our Lord. He isn't somewhere, if you go into pre-Reformation church architecture, somewhere way down the end there where only sort of, uh, you know, the holy guys in the garb get to go. That's all Old Testament sort of thinking. No, he is here 
present with us. Now, five times in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes of our coming together. And he sees it as a time for the body of Christ to gather together with their Lord. As they've uh, said, not that Jesus is in the bread or the wine, nor is he on the table, but that he is here at the table where his people gather, but in a spiritual sense, not in any tangible physical sense. Archbishop Cranmer, who was martyred for not taking the Catholic line on transubstantiation and who basically composed the liturgy that we use, said this, If by real presence you mean the presence of Christ in the bread and the wine, we reject it. But if by the real presence you mean the presence of Christ with his people at the Eucharistic celebration, we affirm it. So, we've seen so far that we look back, we look up, we look forward, we look around, and finally, at communion, we look within. And it's here that we perhaps have the most to learn. In the old Book of Common Prayer from 1662, which was probably, it was composed probably a hundred years before by Cranmer, but in that particular form that we use, it's 1662, and then our versions are all, if you like, updated, mildly kind of tweaked repackagings of that. In the old Book of Common Prayer, written in the days when communion was taken much less frequently. They would often take communion only three times a year. Um, And on those few times, the week before, the minister would read out the six pages of warnings about taking communion unworthily. Between uh, 1980 and 2000, when there was the alternative service book, the warnings got dropped, but fortunately now they've been reinstated, albeit considerably briefer. And what we do, particularly when we have time, we sometimes chop bits out when we're running against the clock, the minister reads this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we gather at the Lord's table, we must recall the promises and warnings given to us in the Scriptures. Let us therefore examine ourselves and repent of our sins. Let us give thanks to God for his redemption of the world through his Son, Jesus Christ. And as we remember Christ's death for us and receive this pledge of his love, let us resolve to serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Now maybe the language is a little bit archaic, but uh, it's what Paul is saying to uh, the Christian community at Corinth. We do need to examine ourselves because it is so easy to deceive ourselves. And when we deceive ourselves, we partake unworthily. And it is dangerous to do so. And because we do want to enjoy the personal benefit of communion, we should examine ourselves quite thoroughly. So if we're not properly prepared, we could be in trouble. Paul even suggests ill health and death. They're not ruled out as punishment from God for approaching communion with the wrong attitude. 
But what's actually happening in the service? Why is it structured the way it is? Because understanding that helps us as we um, are going through the service and enriches it for us. So let's picture together what is happening in the service. There is, first of all, the visible. And there is the invisible. There is what we can see and there is what we can't see. So the visible minister who stands there representing Christ, who is the chief host presiding over the meal. And then the visible minister offers the visible bread and wine to our visible bodies. And at the same time, the invisible Christ offers us his invisible body and blood. In other words, the forgiveness that his death his broken body, his shed blood, the benefits of what his uh, sacrifice has achieved. In other words, forgiveness. And he offers us that forgiveness to our invisible souls. So our visible bodies receive the bread and the wine by eating and drinking. And our invisible souls receive forgiveness of sins by that exercise of faith. As we take the bread and the wine, we are saying this represents what Christ's death achieved, forgiveness of sins. I need it. I'm going to take it. I believe his death works. So we look back, we look up, we look forward, we look around, and we look within. And then the service. Now while we are in the middle of a communion service, and before we um, go any further, it is important to recognise how it is arranged by Thomas Cranmer all that time ago. So our services express the gospel and uh, they detect and confess sin, for example. And then they announce God's grace, God's promise to pardon and to restore the penitent through Christ. And they involve exercising faith. So we express belief in God's promise, we trust him for the promised pardon, and we express our gratitude in acts of praise, intercession, receiving and obeying instruction. So when we have services of the word, which are services which aren't communion services, they have a pattern, and the pattern is this. There is confession, erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. There is grace, God pardons and absolves all those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. And there is faith in his pardoning grace. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins praise, intercession, responding to the sermon. So we have in our services uh, a sequence. We have sin, grace and faith. And in the communion service there are three cycles of sin, grace and faith. Two of those are audible, they're said, and the third is visible, although it's a sacrament which is expressed by using words so that we do know 
what is in fact going on. So let's have a brief look at these three cycles. The first cycle, following this pattern of sin, grace and faith. Each, each cycle, each of the three cycles has sin, grace and faith. So in the first cycle which is sin, we have the colic for purity. Sin is acknowledged. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, it says at the very beginning of the service. And then we have, on hearing the law, Lord have mercy upon us. And then we have grace. Grace that restores Sinners expressed in the New Testament readings which follow. And then we have in the first cycle faith expressed in affirming the faith when we say or sing a version of the creed, of learning through the sermon and in joining together in prayer. Then we move on to the second cycle. We start with sin again. Sin is acknowledged in confession. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past. And then from sin we move again to grace and we have the absolution, which is uh, no more than a proclamation that, uh, of the gospel, that God keeps his word. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. But we read this reminder out, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with heartfelt repentance and true faith turn to him, have mercy on you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is also the comfortable words as they're quaintly called. Hear the words of comfort. Our Saviour Christ says to all who truly turn to him and biblical promises are then read out. And then we move on to faith in the second cycle. And uh, we have the praise of God's goodness with a rather emphatic mood. We up the emphasis. Lift up your hearts, the person at the front says. And we respond, we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It's indeed right. It's our duty and our joy at all times and in all places to give you thanks. And what are we giving him thanks for? Well, the answer is that our sins have been pardoned. Grateful thanks for the reality of forgiveness. And then we come to the third cycle and we start off again with, with sin and we have the prayer of humble access. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. And then we have this prayer of thanksgiving, this Eucharistic prayer as it's called, a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation or offering and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And grace continues in the distribution where we say take and eat this remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. And then 
the third cycle is rounded off with what's known as the Gloria. Though we tend not to use it, we tend to sing a hymn instead. But the words are great, and there are tunes for it. Perhaps we should sing it more than we do. It's an affirmation of praise of God's goodness. Glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father. Amen. So, our service has this pattern, this sequence. We have three cycles. The cycles are composed of sin, grace and faith. Two of them are audible and one is visible. Two are the word and one is a sacrament, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality. But we use words so that we know what's going on, so that we don't let superstitious ideas creep in. So I hope you find that helpful and that you'll recall some of it at least when you're partaking in communion next time.